So if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation 16. We're looking at the very end of the chapter tonight. We've looked at the first five bowls, these temporary judgments, or temporal judgments, I should say, that, that mark the uh, entirety of the inter-advental age, that age from Christ's first coming, His first advent, which is what we're studying right now in Luke chapter 1 and 2, and his, the realities of His second advent, that is His second coming when the all of history will be consummated and the final judgment will be established. And in between there, we call that the inter-advental age. In between that, we saw those temporal judgments that will be marked upon the world for their failure to repent and surrender to the Lord. Last week, we looked at the sixth bowl judgment, that gathering of the nations that marks the very end of the end of history, where the Lord uh, removes all of the restraints of His common grace and sovereignly uh, allows for the enemies of his people to be led and deceived by the dragon through his minions, the beast and the false prophet, to gather together to come against his people in a final battle. And it will look overwhelming. It will look as if his people are going to be crushed. They are outnumbered. And yet we see that in the midst of all of this, God is in control. And this reason for the gathering will be for the purpose of his absolute and utter destruction of them before the eyes of his people so that he receives the fullness of the glory for vindicating his people and bringing justice to evil once and for all. And that is what we see tonight. The seventh bowl marks that final judgment, that picture of judgment that is now poured out and the, the, the worldly system, the great Babylon, is destroyed utterly and swallowed by the earth. That's the picture we're given here. And all of this is a picture of the final and consummated judgment. Now, it's not very detailed, but there's a reason for that. It's because the next cycle that we are going to get, the fifth cycle, Revelation 17 through 19, is a picture of the rise and the fall of Babylon. So it's going to be a full cycle, once again, of the rise and fall of Babylon through the interadvental period. And we will get very descriptive of what that final judgment will look at in that upcoming cycle. And so once again, we see that this will be a final judgment. We know that that's what it's being referred to here. But the Lord has kept us once more hanging on to further see what it will be revealed in the coming cycle of visions. So... With that little introduction of where we've been and where we're going, uh, let's now look at the seventh bowl. So, Revelation 16, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbling peals of thunder and great earthquakes, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because of the plague was so 
severe. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So once again, here we are. Remember, the, the nations have been gathered. The armies of the world have been gathered together at Armageddon, right? This picture of them coming together against the people of God. And now we see what God does to them. He pours out his wrath upon them. This final judgment, which is pictured here in the seventh bowl. Now, we see some really interesting things here about this first thing. So we looked firstly at the seventh bowl being poured out here in verse 17. It says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. Into the air. And that's, that's an interesting little description that we get there. But the reason why he says that he pours it out into the air is because this is actually a picture of the final judgment of the dragon. The final judgment of the dragon and his demons. Now, now you may say, where do you get that from? Well, in the Bible, the air is the picture of the domain of Satan, oftentimes. Right? He is the prince of the powers of the air. So, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. For you were dead in your sins and trespasses, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And, and so the reason why the picture here is of the bowl of judgment being poured out onto the air is that it is picturing the full consummation of Satan's judgment himself. That at the final judgment, Satan and all of his demonic forces that have helped gather these nations, that have led these sons of disobedience against the people of God, they themselves are judged first and foremost. And we will see that in the coming cycles. That Satan, the beast, and the false prophet are actually judged before the nations are. Now you have to ask the question, why, why that order? It's because even in front of the wicked who themselves will be judged, God will be glorified in judging the devil and the beast that they followed in front of them. In other words, a part of their judgment will be to see the judgment of the ones that they devoured themselves to. They will see the fall of the one they followed. And God will be glorified in his justice. Fascinating. And so he pours that into the air, a picture of, the, of Satan, of the demonic forces first being judged and ushering in this picture of final judgment. It, it says, then a loud voice came from the temple. And this is obviously a picture of the throne room of heaven, the temple of heaven, where Christ here is being, is being referred to as speaking with a loud voice. And it's that loud voice that is what marks the thunder and the peals of lightning that we will see in a moment. And so Christ speaks in a loud thundering voice coming from heaven. And notice what is said. It is done. It is done. That's fascinating. Because we've seen a very similar statement before. Christ at Calvary said, It is finished to tell us die. Here at the final judgment, he shouts 
Gegonen, it is done. Now they ultimately have the same meaning. Telestine Gegonen, one means finished, the other means done, completed. But I think there's a reason why Jesus uses two different words here. When Jesus says to Telestai, what was completed? The salvation and redemption of his people. He had did everything necessary. He had drank the full wrath of God himself on behalf of his people so that they were fully covered to Telestai. He drank the wrath himself. He drank it all gone. It's finished. So it is finished to Telestai was a cry of redemption. Gagonin, it is done, is a cry of judgment. And the Lord, I believe, wants to separate the two. In the first, to Telestai, he drinks the wrath for his people. With Gagonin, he has completed the wrath which he has poured out upon his people or excuse me, upon those who came against his people. We will see this same statement again in Revelation 21.6, right at the beginning of when the new heavens and new earth are established. We read Revelation 21.6, and he said to me, It is done, Gagonin. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This is so fascinating to me. That the interadvental age, right, this messianic age that was marked by Christ's death at Calvary to his return in glory and judgment, the markers of this age are two cries. It's finished to Telestai and it is done, Gagonin. And those two cries mark the consummation of the messianic age. We live in between two cries. It is finished and it is done. And this age, right, is the day of salvation. Why? Because wrath hasn't been completed. That's still future. The full judgment is still future. But redemption is now. That's why so many scholars call the interadvental age the era of proclamation. Because this is the age when the proclamation is still readily available to people to repent, turn, believe upon Jesus. Salvation is available. But when he says, and it's done, there is no more. It's over. It'll be over. There'll be no more proclamation. Because judgment will be completed. And only those who received him, received the first cry, it is finished, will be those who will be protected from the second one. We live in a world between two cries. It is finished and it is done. Now is the, to- now is the day of salvation, Paul says. Now is the time to come. Why? Because this is the era of salvation when it is readily available for those who will repent and believe upon Jesus. But those who will not, the only words they will ever know is gagonin. It is done. Judgment complete. And then, 
after giving us kind of this summary statement of the completion of the final judgment, he now kind of gives us a little bit more of the descriptions of it. And he begins by using this what we call theophanic language, right? Theophanies, this appearance of God. In other words, this is a, uh, these descriptions are marking the reality that God has literally come himself. God has visited. He has come. And so we, we read in verse 18, And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on earth so great was that earthquake. So we see that theophanic language there in the the thunder, the flashes of lightning, rumbling, all of these things. These are pictures that God has given throughout the Bible that denote the fact that He is there. He is present. And the first place that we see this in Scripture is on Mount Sinai. When, when Moses receives the law in Exodus 19, 16-19. I'll read it for you. On the morning, on the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled. Greatly, And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. So this is the first kind of theophanic language. And this is when Moses receives the law of God, which will be the standard of judgment. So it's fairly important. That will be the standard of God's judgment. His holy, righteous standard. And when God descended down, it came with clear signs of the power and presence of God that had come to speak and to reveal His law. And now we see here at the end that God has come down. He has descended down in judgment on the basis of His law against those who were lawless. And now we've seen recapitulations of this language throughout Revelation, right? We saw in our first picture of God, the picture when when in Revelation 4, we were carried into the throne room of heaven and it read Revelation 4, 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Then we've gotten these recapitulating pictures of judgment in Revelation 8.5 and Revelation 11.19. Revelation 8.5, Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Revelation 11.19, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunders, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Every time in Revelation, the description of God's appearance and this theophanic language of lightning, peals of thunders, each time it actually increases in the description. So each time, so for instance, in verse 5, it just says there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In, in Revelation 8, it was filled with fire. Uh, there was peals of thunder, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. In Revelation eleven nineteen. There was flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of earth, earth, a thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So each time, it's intensifying. And, and this is what Revelation does. It tells you the same story, the same picture, from a different vantage point 
each time intensifying and escalating until the consummation of Revelation 21 and 22. So it's not telling you just one long chronological consecutive story of maybe one seven-year period of history. No, no, it's, it's telling you the same story over and over again, intensifying, escalating, until it gets to the culminating jubilee of Revelation 21 and 22. And so that's why you see this intensification and this reality. This is a picture of God descending down to bring judgment. It says that there was a great earthquake, so much so that it literally repeats it. Right? It was a great earthquake. So great was that earthquake. Now, we've seen these earthquakes before. We saw them in Revelation 6. We saw it in Revelation eleven thirteen. Once again, same picture, different story, intensifying each time. And so this picture of the earthquake, we'll see in a moment, is pictured as swallowing, swallowing up, destroying, tearing apart the city itself. And we'll, we'll describe what it says about that in a moment. But the picture of the earthquake, right, and this reality of God's absolute and utter control. And notice what is actually used or is pictured as being used in the judgment. It's the earth itself. And what's so important about that is what does Romans 8 talk about the nature of creation, right? It it groans longing for the revelation of Christ to come, right? It it longs, all of the things that we feel, like every earthquake, every rumble that we fear here in Alaska, every thunderstorm, every strike of lightning is creation groaning, saying, come back, Creator. Come back, Lord. It, It is creation's way to wake us up to the reality of what's to come and to point us to our Creator, That as we see the power of creation itself, tsunamis, earthquakes, uh, typhoons, hurricanes, whatever it is, all of those parts of this fallen world are meant to, first and foremost, reveal to the world the absolute power of the Creator that could create a world with such force. But secondly, to, to wake us up to the reality that earth is groaning under its fallen condition, longing to be restored and renewed back to the new heavens and new earth of what will be when Christ returns. And so I just find it fitting here that it's a picture of an earthquake, the earth itself being used as an act of judgment to bring about its bondage, or excuse me, to bring about its liberation from bondage. Just a fascinating picture. And and I love this because this language here makes it very clear that this is not something that is merely referring to 70 A.D. or anything like that. It says here that that there had never been, since such as there had never been since man was on earth, so great was that earthquake. In other words, what's being pictured here is something that will be absolutely and utterly unique to this moment. Never again will there be anything like this. Never again. Never again has there been, never again will there be anything like the final judgment. And this language, such as there never had been on earth, is actually taken from Daniel chapter 12 and the picture of the final judgment. So Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. 
And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's a powerful summation in those opening chapters of Daniel 12. Because you see some very important things there that we see clearly in Revelation. That in this moment of final judgment, we see the fullness of two things happening we see in the final judgment this picture of, first and foremost, the reality of the redemption, the salvation of those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We see also simultaneously a picture of the what? The final resurrection. That those who have died already are raised to life. And what are they raised to? Some are raised to eternal life, those who are written in the book of life, and some are raised to shame and eternal contempt, judgment, those who are not in the book of life. So so notice, there's not multiple resurrections. There's one time marked at the end of the age. Believers are not carried away before this. It happens all simultaneously at this moment. At the moment of the consummation of history, this is when the great harvest happens. When believers go to be at the the, the side of the Lord and those who are left are, are put underneath His wrath and destruction. We see the same picture and the same kind of language used throughout the prophets describing Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord. Joel chapter 2 verse 2. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people. There like, there like has never been before. Nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. So the prophets are making clear that not only will there have never been a day like this, there'll never be another day like this. There won't be multiple judgments. There's one final judgment. That's it. Over. History consummated. And the terror and power seen on that day will have never been seen before and never will it be seen again. And that's good news. That's really good news. One, that's never been seen before. But it's even greater news that it will never be seen again. And you know why that promise can happen? It's because Jesus, when he says, go on and it's done, it's done. There'll never be another fall. There'll never be a rehashing of Adam. Thank God. There'll never be another luring in of a, of a fallen angel who creeps his way into a garden to lure us away. It'll never be again. It'll just be glory. And Jesus reiterates this in Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. When Jesus refers to the great tribulation, he's not referring to any specific time period that's been so taught so often. It's not limited to seven years or seven months. It's not limited to any of that. He's talking about a very specific period at the end of the age. However long that that the Lord may see fit to do that, which will involve the gathering of the nations, the persecution of the church in a way that's never been before, and more importantly, the final judgment that will come on the unbelieving world. When the Lord talks about the Great Tribulation, It is not a text 
of warning or fear for believers. It's a text of warning for an unbelieving world. For they will be the ones who ultimately the tribulation will consummate in. We go through tribulations. We've been going through them since day one. Paul said in Acts 14.22, Through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. Tribulations is just a regular thing for us, but we can count tribulations joy. That's the difference. Because we know that tribulations are not working for us judgment, but glory. Whereas the tribulations that the world will face will only be judgment. It will only be judgment. Trials and tribulations make us more like Jesus. Trials and tribulations for them will be being crushed by Jesus. That's the difference. One leads to glory, the other leads to judgment. And then we get this picture of the fall of Babylon. Verse 19 through 21, which is very much going to be reiterated very heavily in, in chapters 18 specifically. Verse 19, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. They cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. So the first thing we see here is that through this earthquake, the great city, which is referring to the worldly system, Babylon, it has come against God's people. And it says that this earthquake here, the picture here, is that it is split into three parts. Now, is this a little earthquake where all of a sudden the, the, the whole earth is divided into three parts? I don't know. Um, probably not. The picture here is that they are facing the judgment. And why do you think it's, they're split into three parts? Well, it's the triune God. Judgment isn't just coming from one person in the Godhead. All of the Godhead are at work in bringing judgment upon the, 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 the worldly system, the fallen world system. And, and the picture of them being split into three parts is the entirety of the Godhead being in full agreement upon the righteous judgment that will come against the world. Split into three parts, declaring the universality of their judgment and the nature in which it all comes from the triune Godhead of heaven. And this picture of the, the, the cities of the earth being shaken and split in two, collapsing and falling apart. That's the picture here. Is the world system collapsing under the judgment of God is seen consistently throughout the prophets as they foretold of this day. Haggai 2 verse 6 for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet, yes, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Zechariah 14.4 On that day His feet, that's the Messiah, shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split into two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26 and 27. So now we're in the New Covenant picturing this. At that time His voice shook the earth. But now He has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So, so the writer of Hebrews 
is now giving us clarity to what this earthquake language is all about. And the picture is, is that in the final judgment, all that which is not tied or established to Christ's kingdom will fall apart. He comes and He shakes the earth in such a way that everything that is not rooted on the solid rock of Christ will fall apart. And it will not remain. But everything that is anchored to Christ, everything that is built upon the chief cornerstone, Christ Jesus Himself, will stand forever. That is the house of the Lord which will not shake. That is the kingdom of God which stands forever. It is His people who are built upon the rock. That's who will not. So that's this earthquake language. That's what it's all about. It's to shake the world, to show that which is not apart from Him and that which is. That which is will remain forever. That which is not will be utterly destroyed and left in rubbles. And we see that that's what happened. It says, then the cities of the nations fail. A picture of all of the systems, all of the worldly systems that have, that have come together, that have unified against the people of God, that have aligned themselves with the dragon and the beast, have been lured and deceived by the false prophet. All of those cities, all of the worldly system has fallen apart now, fallen down. And it says, God remembered Babylon the Great. Here, this picture of Babylon is once again the worldly system. This worldly system, which, like we said earlier, right? What did Revelation say? It's she who intoxicates the world, who lures the world in with the wine she offers. I'll say more about that in a moment. But is this it is this system. The, the, the worldly system that lures in the attention of people, that, that sets itself up as un, un, impenetrable, unbreakable, a, a, a new world order which cannot be undone, that has all of the might of hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of, of multi uh, hypersonic nuclear missiles. That, that seems impenetrable, unbreakable, unshakable, and Christ will absolutely lay waste to it. This is exactly this language here of he will remember Babylon the Great comes from Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 and his indictment and judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 28 and 35 of Daniel 4, we read, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of twelve months when he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Stop. That's the key. Nebuchadnezzar's walking on the roof, looking over Babylon and going, Man, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done by my power for my majesty, my glory. It's for my glory. Verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you 
until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the, of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That might be one of the most profound and powerful theological statements in the Bible. And it comes from a king who's coming out of judgment. What's the picture here? What's the connection, right? We know that this is not a rebuilt Babylon. There's a lot of people who think there's going to be a literal rebuilding of Babylon. Well, in Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah, when the judgment comes against Babylon and their destruction, it says you'll never be rebuilt again. So in in order for an actual literal Babylon to be rebuilt, it would mean God would have to be a liar. Because he literally told the prophets it will never be rebuilt again. This is a picture of the world system. And what was seen in Nebuchadnezzar was a foreshadow of what this world system will be. It will be a beastly system. That's why it's led by a beast. Notice the language. It will be led by a beast who seeks to fulfill sensual pleasures and calls the world to do the same and a false prophet that will deceive them to do as such. It will be for his majesty and his power and he will seek the world to be egotistic and self-centered and lure them away by their own desires and passions. And as they seek to build their own babbles in this world, the Lord will come in absolute, utter judgment and pour out a wrath like never before seen upon it. And no one will be able to say, what have you done? Because he is just and faithful. And he is powerful. And the world will weep over the fall of Babylon. Revelation 18.15, we'll see this clearly. The merchant of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Those who watch the fall of the system, who belong to the earth, who belong to the world, they will weep over the destruction of the worldly system. Why? Because they they are literally watching their God be destroyed. Their little G God is being destroyed before them. And they will weep and wail as they know that the judgment that they are beholding in the collapse of their system will soon turn to them in final and full judgment. It said that he made her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Now remember, right? She is the one who has gone about making all the nations drink of her cup of passion and immorality. And now, she is being forced by God to drain the cup of His wrath, the wine of His wrath, dry. And the reason why that connection is made is because this judgment highlights that Babylon's punishment fits her crime. She who sought to lure and intoxicate the world away from truth 
away from God, now will find herself intoxicated by his wrath. The one who sought to offer her cup to the world, God says, here's my cup. A cup of wrath. Which she will be caused to drink fully. It will be a wrath like no other. No other. As Christ comes bolting out of heaven in full warrior status. Coming to lay waste to all of those who sought to inflict harm and pain upon His bride. We'll see this clearly in Revelation 19. Revelation 19.15 From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Same picture, just a whole lot more detail in Revelation 19. They will be caused to drink the cup of God's wrath because the city, the worldly system, sought to intoxicate the world with its cup of immorality and lawlessness and wickedness to lure people away from the one true God. It says that the islands, every island fled away. No mountains were, be, were to be found. Once again, we have seen these pictures over and over again throughout Revelation of mountains falling and, and, and islands being, being rolled away. Revelation 6, 14-17, the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Revelation 18, 21, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Revelation 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. What's the picture here, right? Well, first and foremost, the mountains, and often the Bible, are, 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 are pictures of kingdoms or nations. And, and they're level. They're level. There, there will be no... You know, this group's going to be alright, that group's going to be okay, this group is going to be strong. They're leveled. But even more importantly, what this is referring to is the fact that there will be no place to hide. There will be no place to escape this judgment. There will be no islands to go to. There will be no mountains to hide in. Your nuclear bunker won't do you any good on the day of judgment. All the prepping in the world will not prepare you for this. When he comes, Gigonan, it's done. There will be no place to escape. And we know this, right? That this is the picture because back in Revelation 6, beginning in verse 15, it says that the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. Again, that picture there of that seal judgment is the same one here. There, you see the kings, the powerful, the rulers, all of those who have found security in the world, who found status and power in the world. And they're seeking to go to the mountains, to go to places to, to hide from the wrath of the Lord. And, and, and the wrath of the Lord is so intense that they'd say, I'd rather the rocks kill me 
and fall on me than to face his wrath. But what the seventh bowl judgment says is there won't be any. There will be no hiding. You will be fully exposed and laid bare before the holy high king of heaven. And there will be no hiding from this judgment. No place to run. No place to hide. And we see the final picture here. Verse 21. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds, each fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because, of the, plague, because the plague was so severe. Now there's a couple different connections here. And oftentimes, right, the first connection is obviously the plagues of Exodus. So Exodus chapter 9, verse 22-24, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hell in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder, hail, and fire down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of hail of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. You see the connection there with the language, the use of it. So clearly, this is coming out of this language of judgment that came down upon Egypt that would bring forth the liberation of God's people of Israel from their bondage, from their slavery. But this isn't the only time this, use, this language is used. Another time that it's used is Joshua chapter 10. Chapter 10, verses 11, in the conquest of Canaan. We read, And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down from the ascent of Beth Aran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So his judgment against the, the land of Canaan and those who were coming against it was seen more by his power in destroying them by hailstones than it was by them actually being killed by Israelites. I think there was a clear purpose in that. I think the Lord was constantly trying to keep Israel humble to realize there was no conquest apart from him. I think that's why those things happened. Right? Why he killed more than they did. To make it clear, hey, don't forget who's ultimately doing this. Even though they struggle with that a lot. And I think so do we. So do we. But I think the most important connection is one that we began talking about last week. The prophecies of Ezekiel 38 and 39 of Gog and Magog. The picture of the consummation of the nations gathering against God's people when he utterly and finally destroys them. Listen to that part of that prophecy here. Ezekiel 38 verse 19 through 22. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath I declare, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many people who are with him torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. That's, that's where this picture is coming from here. The picture is the full-fledged, 
weighty judgment of God falling upon the heads of people. And the reason why that's so important is because how did Christ ultimately defeat Satan? He crushed his head. And the picture of hailstones is very symbolic because it's the picture that everyone who goes after the dragon, everyone who follows the serpent will have the same demise. Their heads too will be crushed. They will be crushed in judgment just like the one they followed. Just like the one they followed. Ezekiel 13.13, another picture of this day. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. Gagolin, it's done. A full end. There will not be a single person under the judgment of God that will be left unjudged that day. All of them will face the judgment. Revelation 20 verse 9. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. This picture that we've already seen, more detail from Revelation 20, and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Notice, right, in all of the pictures of the prophets, you see that intermixing of hailstones and sulfur and fire. Hailstones, sulfur, and fire. Right? The picture is just clear in all of that. A picture of their crushing and a picture of their judgment. Right? What does fire do? Fire cleanses and it purifies. And that's the picture of why fire comes down to destroy God's enemies. This is the way in which... Take this with a grain of salt. Second Peter 3 talks about how God will restore the earth with fire. Literally will purify it with fire. Not with water, but with fire. That's what it says. He'll never again flood the earth, but He will bring fire to cleanse the earth. I I think that cleansing is not a literal like He's going to just cleanse the landscape of all with fire, basically like a good forester and let it regrow. I think that picture of cleansing the land by fire is the picture of judgment. Is He will cleanse the earth of all wickedness by the fire of His judgment. And through that, recreate heaven and earth without, with the complete and utter absence of sin to cause it to be left into that again. right? Now, will that mean there won't be any new recreation? I, no, I do think there will be. But I think when we look at that picture of cleansing the earth by fire, I think the primary picture there is Him removing all semblance, all hints, all fabrics of evil by the fire of His judgment. And purifying his creation from wickedness. I think that's, to me, the interpretation that I see most fitting. But notice what happens. Notice the hardness of their heart, even in the midst of their judgment. They cursed God for the plague of hell because the plague was so severe. In other words, the reason why this is important I think this is really so important. Is what that little statement there does is to remind us and everyone else who reads this there will be nothing unfair about this judgment. 
This judgment will not come against anyone who didn't deserve it. And here's the truth of it. It's the judgment you and I deserve. The only difference on that day will be are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you in Christ? Have you been brought into the new covenant through the new birth which has brought about the forgiveness of your sins? Because this is what you deserve. It's what I deserve. And the only difference is Christ. Is Christ. The plague will be so severe. The judgment will be unlike anything you and I can possibly fathom. Words will always fall short of the terrors of that day for those who are on the other side of Christ. Words don't suffice. So that's why I always kind of jokingly laugh at anyone who tries to portray a literal picture. Because any literal picture you try to portray of the last judgment will overwhelmingly fail to the horrors of what it will actually be. Just like any literal picture you try to draw of heaven will utterly fail to what it will actually be. It won't even be close. Because words can only do so much. This is the final judgment. It is done. Christ will be perfect in establishing justice against all those who will not repent of their deeds and remain cursing their God rather than turning to Him in salvation. So here's some takeaways for tonight as we head out from here. First is that we live in the already and the not yet of consummational history. Meaning, when Christ says it is finished, died on the cross, was raised to eternal life, the messianic age had begun. In other words, the latter days had begun. That's why at Pentecost, Peter could say and preach Joel chapter 2, saying the latter days have begun. They've begun because what marks the latter days? The reign, the enthronement of the Messiah, which is what happened in the ascension. Christ has been enthroned in glory where he reigns. All authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. He reigns and he's sovereignly advancing his kingdom throughout the world. We are in the era of proclamation. Today is the day of salvation. Today we live in light of the first cry. It is finished to tell us die. Redemption is available. And so every day until he comes should be a day of proclamation. Not a day of hesitation. We need to be a people who proclaim fully, now's the day of salvation. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. Not postpone, not put off, it's at hand. And it is readily available for all who will repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. But one day, We will no longer live under the shadow of it is finished. One day we will live in the reality of Gagonin. It is done. 
and the day of proclamation will end. And those who are in Christ will live forever in glory as the Son turns His kingdom over and hands it over to the Father. As 1 Corinthians 15 says He will. He will take the consummation and completion of His kingdom, the establishment of a new heavens and earth, and He will give it over to the Father and we will dwell forever in the kingdom of the Father for all eternity. But those who are apart from Christ when He returns and pours out His consummating judgment, all they will ever know is the eternal torment that comes with that judgment. A never-ending cycle of perpetual guilt and shame as their consciences are seared day after day, hour after hour, in the realities that they rejected the Lamb. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A picture of both their sadness and their remaining anger towards Him. Where they will burn up in their hatred of God forever and ever. And they will live in absolute torment where they will know nothing of God's peace. Only His wrath. Judgment will come. And the world system that seeks to lure men away from God, will go with it. So here's our final exhortation. Don't give your heart to things that won't last and that are guaranteed to lose. Don't give your heart to things that won't last and are guaranteed to lose. Don't get drunk on the world. It won't last. And it will lose. Don't get caught up In worldly politics, it won't last and it will lose. Don't get caught up in the pleasures of the flesh. It won't last and it will lose. Rather, set your heart upon that which will last and will win. And that is everything attached to Christ. Live your life for His glory. Set your heart fully upon the affections of Christ. Set your thoughts captive to Christ and nowhere else. Don't be taken captive by empty philosophies and deceit, but take every thought captive to Christ. Because everything attached to the cornerstone will stand firm when everything else is shaken. So don't give your heart to things that won't last and things that will lose. God's already told you the outcome. And only a fool would give themselves over to that which they know will lose. But that's precisely what sin does. Sin creates such a pride that even in the sure knowledge of our loss, we will do it anyway. That's why Satan continues to do it. Because he is the epitome of pride. And the epitome of pride is doing something in spite of the fact you know it won't work. A lot of young men fall in that trap. And yet we fall to it all the time. We give ourselves over to things that God's Word has already said, it won't last and it will lose. So don't do that. What is it? What, What fetters are still latched to you from the world? What is it that you can't seem to shake? Say, Lord, help me. 
break these chains of bondage. Set my heart upon you so that all of me, all of me is totally enraptured by your glory and, and set to live for you and nothing else. Set my heart upon you because you are forever and you win. Make sure to ground yourself in a kingdom that will never lose and never be shaken. And that is found alone in the kingdom of Christ. And it's that message that right now, while we live in the shadow of Tetelestai, that we should go and tell the world. The only thing that will stand when it's all said and done is the kingdom of Christ. Are you in it today? If not, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the message. Let's go give it to the world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the reality of its truths. God, we thank you for the realities of your judgment that we might live with a reverential fear, first and foremost, of your power, your might, and your holiness. But secondly, God, of the absolute amazing grace found in your rescue in Christ. That you have come to save us from such a judgment. That in your infinite mercy and love and condescending, coming from heaven, coming down to die in our place in order to lift us to glory. Jesus, we thank you for that. Holy Spirit, we thank you for filling us day after day, renewing us, transforming us day after day into the image of Christ writing your law upon our hearts and leading us and empowering us to live faithfully for you. Lord, we, uh, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us even greater, that we might go and, and eagerly and, and be zealous for good works as we seek to make much of your kingdom. Lord, throw off the muzzle that we so often live in, the fear that, that, that just paralyzes us in anxiety so that we can go and, and be unafraid to tell our family members, our loved ones, our friends, those we work with, of the hope and the salvation and the rescue that's found in Jesus and Him alone. Lord, let us live faithfully for You, fully prepared as we await Your coming. Lord, let us draw closer together as a body of Christ that we might not only be able to gird one another, one another up in faithful, faithfulness and holiness, but that we may also come together as a unified light for you to the world to say Jesus is the only way, the only hope. And Lord, we pray that you will use us in a mighty way to draw many to salvation. That's the prayer, Lord. Lord, if it's your will, use us to draw many to salvation. So help us be your voice in this era of proclamation until you return to establish a new heavens and earth in your glory forever. And in that reality, Lord, we say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. It's in your name we pray. Amen.